Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. How are you doing this week, Darcy? I'm doing pretty good. Not as tired as I have been. We just got back from fall break, which was a nice reprieve. But uh, back in the in the daily grind of all things PhD program, so pretty good. Ugh, painful. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. <laughs> so painful. I'm so glad I'm not in school anymore. <laughs> it just seems like that that was like I, I had all I could take of that, and then I was glad to be done for sure. You know, I really like school. I really like learning. It's just. It's just so much. Like, it's just so much all at once, too, because I'm working, you know, too, and then I get in the lab and everything. So it's like working and school. It's just if if I could just do school, that would be one thing. But that's not how, yeah. how it goes. Who can afford to do that anymore? My goodness. Nobody. Yeah. Who can afford to go to college um, anymore? Nobody. <laughs> right. Unless you live in, like, I think Tennessee is the one that just made it so that community colleges paid for for all residents. That sounds right. And in Georgia, if you make, like, a certain grade point average or whatever for your GPA, you get your public school. Like, if you go to a public school, you get that paid for. But you have to maintain, like, a 3-0 or whatever. So That's not that hard. I would have loved that shit when I was in school. I would have got the whole thing paid for. Yeah. But, um... In any case, this week we have, Darcy and I had a long discussion over the last couple of weeks about doing sort of a hometown hurrah, a sort of a hometown grouping of cases for each one of us, or a home state, right? It was home state, yeah. not necessarily hometown. Yeah. And I obviously grew up in Washington State. I don't know if that's obvious or not, but yeah, I was gonna say, obviously, I grew, up, <laughs> I grew up in Washington State. I went to the University of Washington. I lived in Seattle for many years. I grew up in a very small town just south of the Canadian border called Snohomish. And there's actually some cases that I would like to go over in that generalized area. But I thought it was such a good idea. So essentially what Darcy and I are going to be doing for the next few months is doing little groupings of cases from our home state. So Darcy's going to do Alabama and I'm going to do Washington State. And as we know, both of these states have a treasure trove of super interesting cases and landmark cases and notorious cases and cases that have just been splashed in the news through the decades over and over and over again. And I was just having a chat with Darcy about this other, the other day that Washington State seems to be like a bastion for creepy serial killers. Yeah, I was going to say like the the different... Like Alabama has obviously the civil rights cases, which is going to be a, a pretty big part of what I'm talking about. And Washington seems to have a lot of serial killers. So it's going to be pretty different episodes from each of us, I think. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to start it out this week with some uh, Seattle cases and slash. Well, I think one of them is in federal way, but the other one happened in Seattle. And these are very, very interesting cases. I'm going to start it out with a cold case that got solved just recently. Um, awesome. I found this article on Yahoo News. Um, it originally came out on ABC News by Emily Shapiro. And the article is called Man Arrested in 1991 Cold Case Killing of 16-Year-Old Girl After He's Linked by DNA. So this particular case happened in 1991. It was a 16-year-old girl, 28 years after this 16-year-old girl was found slain outside her Washington State High School. They have now taken a man into custody and linked by DNA to the crime. Yeah, so Patrick Nicholas, who is now 55, obviously he was quite a bit younger when he committed this crime, is accused of killing a young lady named Sarah Yarborough on December 14th, 1991, which was about this time of the year, give or take a month or mm-hmm. two. She arrived at her high school in Federal Way, just outside of Tacoma, in the early hours of Saturday morning to meet her drill team. She was beaten and strangled to death with her stockings, according oh to court gosh. documents. Nicholas, the accused killer, was 27 at the time of the killing. 
And again, he's accused at this point. They have linked him by DNA, but the trial has not happened just yet. So we still need to give him the opportunity to defend himself in this. But a man that was jogging on the morning of the murder actually noticed this girl lying motionless on the ground outside of the school and a man was kneeling over her. Whoa. The jogger thought that they were just a couple making out and jogged on without drawing any attention to it or telling anyone about the scene. But just after 9 a.m., two 12-year-old boys saw a man emerge from the bushy hillside near the school after the man walked away. The boys looked by the hillside and saw the teen's body dressed in her drill team uniform. So is that like drill team? Is that like like a band or... Um, yeah, in Washington okay. State, it's almost like a, it, it's a, like a cheerleader, but like a dance team kind of a thing, okay. but they're not really cheerleaders. They dance and typically they perform with flags or poles or things of that nature before So it's like a majorette or like a flag time. girl. Yeah, yeah. They okay. do it at halftime before the football games, like just gotcha. to entertain people, but it's more like a dance team kind of a thing than gotcha. an instrument carrying. Okay. In any case... Semen was discovered on her clothing at the crime scene, and the DNA profile was searched regularly in state and national DNA databases so that the police could try to find a match because they figured with CODIS linking up the system Mm -hmm. nationally that eventually someone would pop with the DNA taken from her body. When the crime itself happened, DNA evidence was relatively new and it wasn't super, super precise if it was smaller amounts of semen that was found on the scene. So they had it tested a little bit later and put it into CODIS as soon as feasible and then kept searching for decades to try to find her killer. And the thing is, this this young lady was basically my age and I can't imagine how tragic this must have seemed to her family to lose someone so young. And yeah. if you look at her, she's such a cute girl. She's got kind of curly red hair, really just a normal, average girl next door kind of a look. And it just seems so tragic that she would essentially be taken from this world so young. Yeah. But, as with a lot of, of uh, cold case departments in cities in Seattle, Tacoma, and surrounding areas, they have now gone into the genealogy portion of DNA testing to try to do whatever they can to use the tools that are out there to find killers in cold cases. And genealogists had been working on this case for the Federal Way Police Department or the Tacoma Police or whoever was on the case in that particular area. And they zeroed in on two brothers who had been identified through the no- uh, the novel investigative technique known as genetic genealogy. Now, I believe we talked about this with respect to the two young girls, Jennifer Bastian mm-hmm. and Michaela Welsh. Yeah. Michelle Welsh. Um, and they used it for one of the killer's of those two young ladies as well. And it's essentially where they trace the suspect's DNA through the family tree. It is also how they found the Golden State Killer. Mm-hmm. And they used it again on this particular case. And I just find this so cool that they're able to do stuff like this. But again, like the same with the Jennifer Bastian, Michelle Welsh case, they identified two brothers and both of them matched. But Obviously, only one of them did it. Right. They had one of the brothers that they were able to rule out because he had a prior rape conviction and his DNA was already in CODIS. Yikes. So they found out that the one brother did not have a DNA match because he was already in the system. And the second brother was Patrick Nicholas. He had served time in prison for attempted rape in 1983, but his DNA was never entered into CODIS because that was before that sort of thing was required, obviously, because 1983 was quite a long time ago. Yeah, that's a pretty recent um, mandate that they started collecting exactly. DNA. So Patrick Nicholas had also been arrested in 93 for child molestation. Jeez. He, pl- he pleaded guilty to a fourth-degree charge of gross misdemeanor assault to get out of that particular charge. But they surveyed or surveilled him and collected a cigarette that he tossed onto the ground so they could confirm that DNA match in order to get that from him. Because obviously a lot of those guys who have a long history of criminal Mm -hmm. background like this guy did are not going to willingly give their DNA to anyone. Right. But they 
traced this guy. They followed him around until he let a cigarette butt drop, and they grabbed that butt up, sent it in for testing, and they learned last week that the DNA from the cigarette matched the DNA on Yarborough's clothing. Wow. So awesome, awesome, awesome. I'm so glad they found this guy. He was taken into custody just about a week ago. Over 4,000 tips had been submitted in this case by the time of the arrest, but none of these tips actually identified this guy. Wow. They had like an image that they did and they just, they really, they worked hard on this case, but he hid himself well. And they had like three eyewitnesses, basically. They saw the first guy, the jogger, and then they had the two 12-year-old guys that actually found her, right? That yeah, saw him yeah. like walking out of the woods. Wow. So there was no apparent connection between this guy and Yarborough. I mean, she didn't know him. He didn't know her. It was kind of a random situation where he was out and he came upon her and took the opportunity he is set for an arraignment hearing next week, and no, he doesn't have a defense attorney assigned to him yet. Sarah's mother, Laura, spoke at a news conference last week where the, when the arrest was announced and called this an excellent catch. She said that her daughter was a really good student, and she always had a book in her hand. She was very excited about college and had big hopes and dreams for the future, and it was just so tragic that she was taken so early The sheriff is congratulating his team, though, because there are very few things in law enforcement that are more rewarding than telling a parent that you have solved the murder of their child. Wow. The mother almost gave up at times because this, you know, this stayed cold for nearly 30 years. Right. But they found this guy and they owe it all to genetic genealogy because who knows if this man would have committed any more violent crimes to get his DNA into CODIS. I mean, well, and you know, it's possible and, I, and it's likely, it's likely, but at the yeah. same time, these two killers for Michelle and Jenny Bastion, they didn't commit any further crimes right. and they stayed on the run for 30 years. And it sounds like his previous charges were kind of pled down. You know, and I understand the need to, like, plead down if you're a prosecutor or whatever. You don't think you can maybe get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. But I struggle when people accused of sex crimes against children or just any crime against children. I I struggle with them being able to plead down. Like, I understand it, but I struggle with it. You know what I mean? Because. Because if that was a first-degree or second-degree conviction, he would have been put in a database, and he could have possibly been found sooner. You know what I mean? But I don't know. That's just—that's tough. It's tragic cases. I don't think there's anybody out there that willingly thinks that letting a a convicted sex offender plead down to a lesser charge is is a good idea. No. At times I wonder why they do it, but then I realize as well that the court system is so bogged down and there are so many cases going through it at any one particular time, and in order to maintain that efficiency within the court system, that at times they have to do this to expedite the process. Because if you have a trial... The trial could take years to put And it costs money. And, and in the meantime, yeah. he could potentially be out on the street doing more to harm children and, and women. So I understand that, you know, that in the need of expeditious trial and, and getting this guy off the street immediately, that sometimes they do allow for the plea bargain to happen. Right. But it just seems so ridiculously annoying when you hear cases like this where these people have a history of more than one case of sexual deviance, rape, uh, molestation, uh, any one of those different types of crimes, and then they go on later to escalate into something larger, like the murder of this beautiful young girl who had such an amazing future ahead of her. And it's almost like you want there to be like an asterisk beside like the, the conviction to be like, this was a fourth degree but it was pleaded down from, like, you can't do that. But, like, you almost want that because, like, that then it would be like, oh, maybe this is somebody we could look at. But obviously you can't do that. That's not, you know. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's just, it's tough when that when stuff like that happens. And I feel like it happens so often that for whatever reason they plead down and then, you know, years later we hear about them being arrested for a murder because of an escalation where... You know, just this exact situation where they could have been caught earlier, you know. 
And it's, it's very, very sad. And we wish all the best to Sarah Yarborough's family. And we're glad that, that her mother, Laura, was able to get some closure out of this and, and put it to rest. I mean, not mm-hmm. that you can ever forget a child in that way or that it doesn't ever hurt in your heart. But at least there is some degree of closure knowing that that monster is in jail and that he yeah. will not be hurting anyone else. Yeah. And hopefully he'll get some jailhouse justice of his own. <laughs> well, and if there is, uh, you know, if there, if there is a conviction, you know, they get to make a, a victim impact statement and they finally get to address the person that did this, you know, which I think is, is important for family members. So absolutely the second case that i want to talk about happened shortly after the first case happened and this is the case of mia zapata and i got a lot of the information from wikipedia and from the case file podcast who did a really excellent oh, I episode love. About that might be where mia. i heard about this the first time you can cut that but yeah that's when you asked me if i'd heard possible. about it I, I love the I case it. file. I do too. I mean, it's, it's so a, good. It's a scripted podcast by, I think he's Australian, isn't he? Yeah, he is Australian. I don't think we actually know his name. No, I think he's, anonymous. he's anonymous. Yeah. And I love it. He's not yeah. seeking to like glorify himself. He's not seeking to get fame and fortune and to cash in on tragedies of other people. He just wants to get true crime out there. I read an article about about that podcast and it started like he was in the hospital with like a leg injury or a knee surgery or something like that. And so he was just like laid out for a period of time. And so he decided he was going to start a podcast like that's pretty much how it started. And so now he has like a whole production team and everything. But it was like it started with just him. And like, that's why it started. He was like, I don't have anything. I can't work. So I'm going to do this. Yeah. I love him. It's so good. It really is so I good. I marry him. No, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's that Australian accent, man. Right? <laughs> so hot. Okay. So let's jump into the case of Mia Zapata. She was born August 25th, 1965 in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville or? No. Louisville or? Louisville. 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 I'm not a southerner. I'm a damn Yankee for fuck's sake. I know, but it's... <laughs> Louisville. It's, Louisville? No. Louisville. Like, Louisville. you want to have as, Just, you like have as few syllables. It's, yeah, that's I what you like want. It. Like, you want to have it's as mush. few it's syllables as possible when you say it. Louisville. You goddamn Southerners. That's mush. not a Southern thing. That's like a, mid, <laughs> that's a Midwestern. It's kind of a no, Southern, but. Because it, I'm from up north, and mm-hmm. we would say Louis, Louisville. I know you would say that, but people. In Louisville. That's how we would pronounce it. Yeah, but you're not, not from southern. the city. <laughs> you're not, not You can't, like, tell people from that city how to pronounce their own city name. I lived there for a year. She had a brother and a sister. Her father, Richard, was a manager at a local TV station, and her mother, Donna, was the manager at a radio station. So she came from a family yeah. of, like, talent managers, essentially. Her parents had some somewhat prominent positions in radio and TV and that allowed for them to have a a pretty comfortable life. They lived in Douglas Hills, Kentucky in sort of a nice suburb there. And they were pretty much allowed to be free spirited and independent because it was a very safe area to grow up in. And from a very young age, Mia started singing. She had a very strong Mm. and husky voice that people could not believe was coming out of the Mm -hmm. mouth of such a young girl particularly yeah. a young white girl i'm sure people looked at her like what in the dickens they did not say what in the dickens because it was not was the year 1884 <laughs> well you know what i'm talking My about pearls. anyway so she had a talent for singing she was very creative she was on the swim team she was very good she actually competed and did very well for herself in swim but Sports just really weren't her thing, and she would rather find her own avenue to express creativity. She loved painting, and her favorite era was the Expressionist paintings. She loved creative clothes, poetry, writing her own lyrics. She was very artistic. She had a passion for 60s rock. She loved Janis Joplin, David Bowie, The Pretenders. And she would carry around a journal with her where she would write out lyrics constantly because this was just something that she That's knew awesome. she was going to do. It was in her blood. 
She was also kind of a non-conformer. She didn't really like the status quo and wasn't into doing things the way everybody else Mm -hmm. said you should do them. She wasn't going to get into any trouble or break the law, but she was just a very unique kind of person. Now, her parents ended up getting separated when she was, I think, in either in high school or in college. But by that point, Mia went on to Antioch University to study music. It was at that point that she first met the members of her band in 1986. They were formed and they were called the Sniveling Little Rat Face. <laughs> such an 80s Gits. name. That's amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> right? Eventually, they shortened yeah. that to just the Gits because that's a long yeah. name to have to like spit out. Sniveling Little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So she was the main lyricist and the front woman, as well as Hell the yeah. spokesperson for the band. And she just was very passionate about it. She loved it. It was it was so her thing. And Joe Spleen was guitars. Matt Dresner was bass. Steve Moriarty was drums. And they really just were pounding it out, trying to make it in sort of a 60s-inspired rock scene at the time. Mia loved the blues as well, and she was kind of combining punk with the soulful, intense sound of the blues and sort of making this new sound that was going on during that time period, which was essentially building into the grunge movement. She was very social, compassionate, but also street smart. It was interesting because she was double-jointed, tall, and skinny, and her friends (laughs) called her the chicken woman. But she took it, like, good-naturedly. Right. It was, like, her thing. It was She was into it. She wasn't offended by it or bothered by it. This group, and with Mia as its front woman, was really looking to break into the music scene, and they realized that if they stayed in the area that they were mm-hmm. at, sort of the Midwestern kind of thing, they weren't really going to succeed. So in 1989, they moved to San Francisco initially and then on to Seattle, where that non-conforming sort of alternative yeah, that's music the place was to be. really taking off at that time. It was a really, it was a huge staple in the Seattle music scene. The counterculture there was thriving and groups like Mia had really yeah. no interest in popular music. They wanted to do their own thing. The only issue was that not a lot of clubs were sort of into that. They had a lot of heavy metal stuff going on, some punk and that sort of a thing but they didn't really have this alternative scene happening until a club called Gorilla Gardens got onto the scene. And that's really where the grunge beginnings sort of took off. This was like the rock punk metal all combined into this angst and angry stories and anti-establishment and blue collar this. And with all of that, like combining into this amazing music scene, Mia and her band moved into the Capitol Hill area of Seattle So Capitol Hill is like a lot of affluent old homes, but then it's got some kind of more Mm -hmm. grungy, for lack of a better word, neighborhoods where there's a lot of poor people without jobs. There's a lot of social assistance going on and crime. So it's kind of a combination of those two things in that area of Seattle. But that's where the band moved and that's where their recording studio was. So fast forward a few years to 1993, the grunge music scene by then had freaking exploded. Major music labels were checking things out and signing bands left and right. They got Alice in Chains, they got Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Mudhoney, The Melvins, Nirvana. Everybody was just eating up Nirvana. They were literally the most popular band at the time internationally huge and just selling out venues and concerts all over the world, essentially. People could not get enough flannel in 93. They could not. And I remember that time period because I was growing up then, and I did go to, I went to Pearl Jam, I went to Soundgarden, I did not, uh, Alice in Chains, I went to all those. I did not see a Nirvana in concert, I did not see the Melvins, I did not see Mud Honey, but all of those other bands I was able to see. What I would give to see Pearl Jam... I would, I would love so to see good. Pearl Jam now, but like, oh my God, I would, what I would give to see Soundgarden or Chris Cornell. Soundgarden was fucking amazing. I saw it. That was my very first concert that I ever went to was Soundgarden. 
Oh my god, that's legit. My first concert was New Kids on the Block, so you know. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> no. Soundgarden was amazing. Yeah, and to this yeah. day, it is literally one of the best concerts I've ever been to. I believe Chris, it. Chris Cornell was Unreal. a vocal monster. He was Unreal. so talented. And just the creativity, the lyrics, the ideas, the movement yep. that he created was just, I, I still, I there's no words for it. And it's so sad and that he is gone. I know. And if you haven't heard it, you need to check out the Chris Cornell album songbook. It's all like acoustic live recordings of just, it's just him. Yeah. Oh yeah. He is incredible. It's like, oh my God, it's incredible. So in the midst of that, like amazing, just huge cauldron of talent, the gits were there. They were in it. They were Mm. soaking it up. They were moving up in the scene and getting popular They had lots of international and national tour dates planned, along with new records that they were recording. Their California tour that they had just done was a major success, and people were lining up to try to get them to sign on their record labels. Atlantic Records wanted to sign them. MGM, Warner Brothers, all those major labels were like, hey, we've got interest in you guys. We want to see what you can do. But at the same time... Mia, who was sort of this anti-establishment rebel who liked to do things her own way, was sort of worried about shedding her values and quote-unquote selling out. Right. Selling out was like like such a big deal in the like mid-90s. Selling out was like, that was the things like you were a sellout. That was like the worst insult you could be. And she was really worried that if they quote-unquote sold out to a record label for a big deal that it would ruin the passion and the authenticity of their music yeah because that was what made it so gritty and real and beautiful was that it was so from the soul and yeah a lot of times the only way you get that is by living in a living a certain way and just getting knee deep in it and not having that money and just getting it from deep down inside that was Kurt Cobain's uh, big thing, too, is he was very uncomfortable with, like, the fame and all of that and, like, all of the the major record label and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, Mia and her family all lived pretty far apart, but they were still pretty close, and they still worried about her and her lifestyle because the Capitol Hill area, historically speaking, is not necessarily, it's it's not, you know, inner city or, like, New York, New York City kind of a crime yeah. level, but... You know, when you consider that there had been a lot of suicides and deaths in the grunge scene and they lost a lot of musicians and that scene was really known for number one, depression, number two, drug Mm -hmm. use and number three, Mm -hmm. sort of this lifestyle that was not necessarily conducive to being a healthy, well-balanced person because it was those very things that created the music that made it so popular. So her family was kind of worried about her. They knew that she had occasionally had issues with drinking excessively mm-hmm. and drug use. Well, and I mean, she grew up presumably middle class, upper middle class, right? And then all of a sudden she's like, hey, I'm going to go be a musician. Of course your family's going to be like, the fuck you are? Like, right. I, you and went to a private school for college. Like, she it's, moved yeah, the country, so, so anybody's going to be hesitant about that, yeah. I get that. So, but she was really good about checking in with them and like staying close and making sure that they always knew what kind of what was going on. And Tuesday after 4th of July weekend in 1993, she's got a tour about to start soon for the Gets. It's 11 a.m. She gets up. She meets her dad for lunch. And getting up at 11 a.m. when you're in that age bracket was like the use. That's early. Especially if you yeah. like practiced and like went out and partied and like wrote and like you burn the midnight oil and then you get up yeah. late the next day and do it all over again. Like, your day isn't actually starting till 4 p.m. on most days when that's, like, your lifestyle. And she, her dad was in town. So she met her Mm -hmm. dad for lunch, and then they went to the Seattle Art Museum, and then they went to a record store, and they did some different things, and then she got dropped off at her Rainier Valley apartment. Now, Rainier Valley is not a nice part of town. I don't know what it's like now, but back then it was pretty gritty. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of drug use, a lot of sex work, a lot of just crime happening in that particular area. But mm-hmm. he dropped her off after lunch at around 3 p.m. at her apartment. 
She <laughs> was planning a studio rehearsal later in the afternoon, and so she was kind of doing laundry and walking the dog and kind of running her errands. And then by 6.30 that night, she got dressed. She was wearing shorts, a black hooded sweatshirt, and black boots. And that will come into play later. But she arrived at 11th Avenue at the Winston Apartments where the studio was and got right to work. And she was just really like a workhorse. She got Mm -hmm. into it and just spent that two hours rehearsing and just killing it. She was actually doing backup vocals for her ex-boyfriend's band at that particular time. So she was really, she had her hands in several different kinds of projects, but she just Mm -hmm. was getting her name out there and enjoyed the love and the passion for the music so much that even though it was her ex-boyfriend's band and they had recently broken up and it was sort of an awkward breakup, she was still like pushing through, getting it done, doing what she needed to do because she was a backup Mm -hmm. vocalist and she wanted to make sure that this project that she was involved in was good. Yeah. About 8.30 p.m., she stopped the rehearsal, or they, the rehearsal ended, and everybody kind of dispersed, and she walked to the Comet Tavern. This is in Capitol Hill area, and it's sort of a, it was a dive bar at the time. I don't even know if the Comet Tavern is even still there anymore, but she went to this bar, met up with her friends, they drank, they talked. They were sort of reminiscing about the death of another friend who was in another band one year prior. So everyone was kind of a little sober, somber, in there talking right. about it and thinking about it. And during this time period, there were a lot of deaths by suicide. There was a lot of drug overdoses. There was a lot of just crazy mm-hmm. shit happening in that scene. So it was very sad for a lot of people because there were quite a few people that lost people that were close to them to things like that. Right. But Mia was drinking heavily that night. And she left the bar and walked to a pizza place that she worked at part-time. She was kind of with a group of people at this time, so it's not as though she was walking around on her own. And it was still relatively early, and there were probably quite a few people out and about because it's the summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, when it's in Seattle in the summer when it's warm yeah. and it's beautiful and the city is just amazing and everybody's out and it's just it's a phenomenal scene to be in. And I can't imagine what it must have been like with those recording studios and For that real. scene back then. So she's, yeah. you know, having a really good time. She took a couple shots with her friends at the pizza place, and then they went back to the Comet, where Mia used a payphone and drank some more. So around 1 a.m., she goes to a nearby friend's apartment, which was near the rehearsal studio that she'd been at earlier, and some people think that maybe she had gone to kind of check to see if her ex was still there and maybe, you know, kind of mm. check up on him or whatnot. But she was seen walking to another friend's house shortly after that. And she hung out with that friend for a while. And then around 2 a.m., she told that friend that she was going to head two blocks west to a gas station to get a cab home. Now, why she needed to go to a gas station to get a cab home is sort of beyond me. Maybe she was going to get cigarettes. I, I'm not sure. It doesn't really say a whole lot or, about why she went to the gas maybe station. Maybe that was like a typical place where cabs like picked up and dropped off and she didn't have a phone to call yeah. a cab. It's entirely possible. Cause this is before the era, the era of cell phones and right. It was just landlines only at that point, but her friend wanted her to say like maybe she was going to use the payphone at the gas station or something. I mean, it's possible. To call it's a entirely cab. Yeah. possible. It doesn't sound like totally out of the rational realm of possibility that she would do that. But anyway, right. She went to this gas... She told her friend she was going to go to the gas station. And her friend is like, hey, I just don't think it's safe for you to be running around at 2 o'clock in the morning by yourself. Please stay. Mm -hmm. But Mia was like, nope, I'm going. She loved walking. She was just one of those sort of people that was like, this is my neighborhood. I'm going to go out and do what I got to do and everybody else be damned. And she does the one thing that we all know that we should not do now. But she put a Walkman... She started listening to her, turned her walk mm. on, put the headphones on, and, and zoned out. Yeah. Bad move. Bad, bad move. We all know that when you're out in anywhere, especially after dark, you should never have headphones on because you can't right. hear anybody coming up in back of you, behind you, on the side of you. And it's a you distraction. You put yourself in a lot of danger. At that time, I'm sure that was the last thought on her mind. She of was in her neighborhood. Her people were there, and she'd been there for a while. And I think a lot of times, too, young people sort of have this sense of invincibility about them that nothing bad's going to happen to me. I mean, this is is my neighborhood. Like, I live here. Oh, yeah. Nothing bad could happen. And 
if we have any younger listeners who don't know, a Walkman was the original portable music player. It played cassette tapes, which were the precursors to CDs. They also <laughs> so this had is ones way that, back. that would play the radio, like regular AM They did have the ones that play the radio, radio. <laughs> yeah. My dad had, had one that, that was uh, pretty highfalutin. It was um, cassette tapes and AM FM radio. Yeah, so, I had one. I don't want to brag, but yeah, I'm not gonna lie. it was yellow. I'm giving, I'm giving my age away a little bit, but I had one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So no one really knows where Mia went after she left that friend's house around 2 a.m. But at about 3.20 a.m., a woman was walking on 24th Avenue South, about a mile and a half southeast of the friend's apartment she had been at earlier, along a small, isolated, dead-end street a body is found. Now, this particular area was very common for sex workers, drug deals, etc. A lot of bad shit happened in that particular mm-hmm. area. It's not a nice part of town. Again, it's not like Compton or New York City back alleyway, but it's still not a nice area and probably not some place that you want to be hanging out after dark. Sure. But... This woman is out walking your dog. God knows why there's a woman out walking your dog at 3.20 in the morning. At 3.20 on a dead-end street. Right. But she notices the body, and it's face up, legs straight, crossed at the ankles, arms stretched out. They think that it's sort of a religious pose. Okay. Because it's kind of like a cross. Okay. The fire, she, she immediately gets, runs and calls the police. The fire department comes first, and her body is still warm at that time. Oh my gosh. This has been that recent. She's warm but lifeless. So, 3.35 a.m., she is declared dead. There is no ID on the body, and the only really sort of identifying feature is a tattoo of a chicken on her calf. She is partially dressed. Her hoodie is pulled up. It's covering her face, and the cord has been removed and tied around her neck. Mm. There are fresh scuffs on her boots. There is also um, damage to her hip, her belt. It's obviously she's. It's obvious that she's been pulled or dragged. There Was are, she wearing her shorts? Yes. There are metal okay. fragments around her, tire marks hmm. near her head, but no signs of a struggle, which makes the police instantly believe that someone killed her somewhere else and dumped her here. Right. No wallet. Her underwear and bra are stuffed into her pocket. Her bra has been ripped with one cup missing. Huh. So the coroner gets the body and determines that the cause of death from ligature marks around her neck is strangulation with a cord of her sweatshirt. Hmm. She has been raped, but they don't immediately find semen. She has got blows to her abdomen, and she is pretty badly injured. There is pretty significant internal organ damage that the the coroner believes she would likely have died from had she not been suffocated. Oh my gosh. It was just that bad. We had bite marks and red marks all over her body. Her right breast as well had bite marks on it. So this is a vicious attack. Yeah. And the thing about the bite mark on her breast is it was a teeth scrape, but not deep enough for a bite mark, an actual bite mark. So they couldn't really get a bite mark um, Uh evidence off of that to compare teeth. But at that point, they did the full exam on her and swabbed her for DNA. They swabbed the bite mark area for DNA so Mm -hmm. because there was no DNA from semen. Although it was obvious that she'd been sexually assaulted, there was no DNA from semen. So they swabbed her for the DNA and they knew that that little bit of saliva from her breast was probably uh-huh. not enough for a full DNA sample at that time in 1993. So they uh-huh. stored it. They put it into long-term storage for future DNA testing when the technology wow. advanced enough. They had enough foresight to be able to determine that, hey, we're going to fuck this up if we try to test it now. And right. we've got such a small sample that we have to save this for future testing and, and we'll find this guy eventually. They suspected that this was drug-related or possibly somebody that knew Mia. Mm. Initially, the police went public, but they kept uh, the, the missing bra strap part and the sex elements. They withheld that information. Were they able to identify her relatively quickly because she didn't have any ID on her? Yeah. 
I okay. believe that the coroner who was called in for the case knew recognized her immediately because he was oh, a fan okay. of the scene, and so they knew pretty quickly who she was. Wow! Even though she didn't have plus the chicken on her leg, and yeah, um, they withheld the information about the sexual parts of it because they wanted to be able to eliminate false confessions. Sure. Um, and be able to help close the case later. But the level of violence and injuries that she suffered sort of indicated to the police that someone had wanted to cause her pretty significant pain. Right. But the police were finding it very hard to trace her steps that night because they didn't have any CCTV footage. They kind of knew a little bit from talking to the friend that she was with where she was possibly going, but there's that big chunk of time from about 2 a.m. to about 3.30 where they don't really know what happened to her or where she went. Right. And so many people knew her. It was such a small community. They started looking through the music scene and the vicinity where she lived, and they found no witnesses to this at all. They interviewed her ex. He did two polygraphs and gave a semen sample to get DNA, and he cooperated with all the phases and had a very strong alibi for the whole night, so he was taken off the table. Okay. All of her male friends gave DNA. They were like, hey, we want to just help in any way we can so that you can try to find this person. But still, the police had no leads or idea where the murder happened. Shock and fear sort of is permeating the local community at that point. Is there a serial killer? Is it a crazed fan? Is it somebody random? She's got the, they, the way she was laying on the ground. They said, yeah. was it a deliberate religious pose? Was that the motive? Was this the Green River killer who was working at that time? She was raped and, and strangled. And there's the whole occult thing from the early yeah. 90s. Well, she was raped and strangled. And the Green River killer also did that. And then he sometimes yeah. posed the bodies, too. But the Green River killer didn't really intend for people to find her body. And this guy clearly did. Yeah. So they concentrated on fans and peers in the music community because maybe they thought it was a a grudge killer. So they were sort Mm. of looking at everybody, but they had such a wide net that they were, they had to throw out to try to find anybody. The FBI profile said the person must have a history of violence and assault in the past, but Again, they have no leads, and the grunge scene is just like, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah. We just lost this woman. This is tragic. Like, are, is somebody else going to come for us? Are we going to die, too? Is this, you know, anti-grunge? Yeah. And Mia was only 27 years old at her death, mm. which is so freaking sad. On Saturday, July 10th, they had a private memorial for her where they remembered her with her painting, her writing, her singing. Friends gathered from all over the world, basically, to celebrate her and her life and to, to remember her. They paid tribute. They all had, they carried yellow roses, which was Mia's favorite flower. They read her poetry. They showed pictures of her and they shared stories of her influence and how she had impacted other people's lives. But in the meantime, her friends were freaking suspicious of everyone because police told them it was likely somebody they knew. Oh, shit. But that particular community and the friends that knew her were like, oh, hell no. Number one, we are not letting this person get away with it. And number two, we are going to do everything we can to find this fucker. Yeah. They put posters all over Seattle asking for leads. Her friends were searching like crazy. They, the Crime Stoppers offered a reward of, it was only a thousand dollar reward for information leading to her killer, which doesn't seem very high to me. Right. But her friends got together and they hired a private investigator. This woman, Lee Heron, focused on the local community, the clubs, the grunge scene, the nomadic lifestyles, though, of the people that were in that scene sort of made it so they didn't have phones or permanent addresses. And so it was really kind of hard to narrow things down and to find people and interview people on this scene. So she started following a few dedicated fans and they looked at a few people and there were some suspects that came up but were eliminated. One woman came forward, though, saying she saw a male driver masturbating in a car near where the body was found around that time period. And the police essentially looked into it, but kind of put it to the side, as in it doesn't really relate to this case, and we're not going to spend, you know, time and energy looking at that when it's probably just some random creepy dude masturbating. Right. Well, and there's not a lot to work with. No. Too. 
with that. No. And I don't think they had his license plate either. I think she just yeah. reported that she saw this man in this type of car masturbating. Um, in the meantime, her friends and the music scene and the grunge people were sort of rallying around this to raise funds to try to help find her killer. Joan Jett stepped in. Badass Joan Jett. Mm. She helped the benefit concert. She did vocals with the gits and sort of she had sort of that same raspy smoky yeah. deep voice as For Mia sure. did so she stepped in and really like helped them put out benefit records to try to find this and Pearl Jam Soundgarden Nirvana Courtney Love all helped raise funds to help with this Warner Brothers wow. hosted this special benefit rally to help try to raise money they also created a self-defense training class called Home Alive and this organization is pretty much still in place today. And it was sort of created in Mia's honor to help with self-defense and gun classes and helping people learn safe ways to exist in their communities and not put themselves mm-hmm. in danger. But they raised the money, for number one, to help the case get solved for Mia's murder. And number two, to go to this organization to help people stay alive and to get home at the end of the evening. Um, That's cool. The Gits released their second album in 1994 with the help of Joan Jett's vocals. And they really used the proceeds from that to contribute as well to the case. Um, At that time, though, people were super, super bummed because there were so many amazing musicians who were dying. You had Mm -hmm. Andrew Wood, Stephanie Sargent, Kurt Cobain, Christian Pfaff. All these people died from 90 to 94, and it just kept getting worse and worse. People kept dying, and it was just really... They started to dub the grunge scene the deadliest music genre. And it was super, like, gritty and dark. I would probably not say that's accurate, but I knew... Like, in the moment, I can understand why they thought that. Oh, yeah, people thought that, but... Right. So, fast forward three years... Still no breaks in the case, still no major leads, and the the white chalk outline from Mia's body is still there in Seattle. Wow. The money is starting to dry up, but the private investigator, Lee, was continuing to work on the case pro bono after it went cold because she just felt so strongly about it and had so much passion for finding the killer. Then we go to 2001. So clearly this case has been cold for a while, and... The cold case unit reopens this and checks out the saliva that was saved in 1993. DNA technology is much improved by now, but the people that pulled it out were sort of worried because they thought that the sample was so small that they wanted to make sure that the DNA process for testing that small of an amount was absolutely 100% accurate and tried and true. So they had to wait a little bit longer to be able to do that testing because they didn't want to waste that last single small sample. But when they did test it, two profiles were extracted. Mia's two Mia's profile and then one of an unknown male. So they've got DNA. They've got a male. They've got a suspect now. They threw it into the Washington State database and nothing came up. They ruled out every single one of the guys in the 90s who gave the DNA samples, her friends and acquaintances that were Mm -hmm. trying to help the police department. All those guys were ruled out as well. 2002, they put the DNA profile into CODIS, which is the FBI felony convictions database that's nationwide. And they're like, yeah, it's combined DNA index system. They're like, we're bound to get something in there. But there were no matches in CODIS. They keep checking it weekly because they're like, there's something's got to pop up right. and the case goes cold again. December, 2002, the Seattle police department gets a call from Florida. They have just passed a new law, which allows for the collection of DNA because burglary is now a felony. So anyone with burglary conviction, burglary tools, anything burglary related can now be forced to and compelled to give DNA. Oh, wow. And because of that, they found a match in Florida. A man had been caught with burglary tools. They forced him to give his DNA and bam, it matches the Seattle Mia's killer. This man, Jesus 
Mesquia was a 40-year-old Cuban exile living in Florida. He had a long history, aggravated convictions for battery of a pregnant woman in 1992, kidnapping, false imprisonment, robbery, indecent exposure in the 80s in Florida, California convictions in the 80s and 90s, battery of a spouse, assault to commit rape. I mean, this guy was Good just Lord. like a dirtbag who spent yeah. time in jail for various crimes, awful, awful history of violence and sexual-related crimes. He had actually lived in Seattle from 92 to 94. He lived just blocks from where Mia was found. He had a speeding ticket in the same area during that time period, so they were able to place him in that area. And Mm, he also had lived with a woman who was out of town the night of Mia's murder. So he did not have an alibi for that time period. Additionally, his license plate came up in the murder file. So I guess she had gotten the license plate. The woman that saw the man masturbating and reported it to the police. The case that they had written off as non-related was in the murder file because the woman had called in and that matched his license plate. Wow. So clearly at that point, it demonstrated a little bit the police had dropped the ball on that one. They should have investigated him a little bit deeper. Um, they placed his home under surveillance in Florida, but there was no sign of Mesquia. He had oh. looked like he friggin' disappeared off the face of the planet. His wife is still living there, though, and they go and, and interview her, and she says he left to Miami for a temp job on a fishing boat. So the police are running around, chasing him down. They go to the address that the wife gave, and they took him into custody. He went willingly, didn't struggle, because he thought the police were checking up on his probation. But they were not. God. When you're, like, such a bad, like, when you're so prolific a criminal that you don't know why the police are there. Right? It's <laughs> freaking awful. January 10th, 2003, Mesquia is arrested and charged. He denied meeting, knowing, or killing Mia, obviously. Um, here's the deal, though. This guy is 6'4", 240 pounds. Whoa. Huge, huge man. So clearly, Mia didn't stand a chance. She's this skinny, petite, young lady. And she had no chance against somebody of that size. And clearly, he beat the shit out of her because he was an awful, awful, violent man. At the trial, though, the whole case hinged on the saliva found on Mia's body. The prosecution believed that in the early hours, Jesus drove past Mia and she didn't hear him because of her headphones. Mm. At that point, he grabbed her and pulled her into the car, bashed her and sexually assaulted her and beat the shit out of her. He then dumped her a few blocks from his own home. There was no religious connection, despite the fact that people thought there was because of the way she landed. They just determined it was random completely random that's probably like how he was like dragging her by her arms or something like that yep and she had the scuffs to prove it yeah interestingly enough though another woman came forward during this period as well saying that jesus had also attacked her while she was jogging this woman was jogging at 4 30 a.m through <laughs> through the rainy In, valley it, 4 30 a.m early early morning like dawn is the most dangerous time that's to scary. be For yeah real. so just just so you know and and obviously if you're doing that and it's still dark out no headphones take something with you if possible it's just be aware of your surroundings that's a very dangerous oh, time yeah. to be out oh yeah and a flashlight or a headlamp on your yeah i mean that's scary in any case Mesquia knocked her down but she managed to get to her feet and run away She saw him, though, near her apartment later, staring at her and masturbating before he took off. Oh, God. Just so gross. The trial lasted about two weeks, and Mesquia was obviously found guilty, and the judge sentenced him to 36 years, which is beyond the standard sentence of 18 to 28 years. They just just Hmm. determined that the extreme violence and deliberate sort of action that this guy did was a, was a factor that could allow for extending the, the typical and standard sentencing. Okay. 
So the jury didn't determine that. The judge jumped in and was like, fuck it. I'm giving this guy 36 years. He did such bad damage to this woman that this deserves to keep him in jail for longer than the standard. Mm-hmm. 2005. Mesquia appeals his sentence and the murder conviction, and the sentencing gets overturned by the appellate court. Hmm. And this is actually based on a U.S. Supreme Court ruling, which is called the Blakely decision. Here's sort of a brief summary is any factor that extends a sentence beyond the standard sentencing guideline must itself be proven and approved by a jury, not a judge alone. So they're saying that the judge erred when he made the decision on his own to go beyond the sentencing guidelines and extend that to the 36 year sentence. So they overturned the sentencing, not the conviction. And that was 2005? Yes. That's interesting because that is before the Lauren Burke, Courtney Lockhart judicial override that we talked about in that, that story, the Lauren Burke episode. Yes. What's also hmm. interesting is that it took until 2009 to get this case resentenced. And at that time, four years later, after the original overturn, Mesquia waived his right to have a jury consider whether aggravating circumstances were justifying a longer prison sentence for him. So his attorneys had fought for him to overturn the sentence, saying that the judge should not have been able to decide that to extend that sentence. And then he waives Uh his right to a jury. I wonder if he thought maybe the jury would either confirm or even impose a harsher sentence. It's entirely possible. I mean, juries have been known to do stranger things. Like, I would definitely right. look to the judge for a more fair sentence, which is what Yeah, for did. sure. And the judge upheld the 36-year sentence. Hmm. <laughs> it's really funny, because there's not a chance in hell. No one in this case around it or within it thinks he would have gotten a lesser sentence, but he believed he had a chance to get a lesser sentence if he let the judge decide it. Yikes. So this guy's in jail. Was it the same judge as like the first time who imposed the no. original sentence? No. Oh, okay. Different judge. That's what, okay. you have the, the overturn, the judicial override uh-huh. issue, and then they throw it to a different judge within the lower court gotcha. system to decide again. Okay. And it would have been a jury if he hadn't waived that right. right. But in any case, this guy, uh, Jesus Mesquia, is in prison in Washington State now. I believe he's in Walla Walla prison. I might okay. be wrong on that. Correct me if I'm wrong, any listeners that have actually heard of this case, but the Home Alive organization is still going to this day, and people still remember Mia as being a talent that was lost too young, and it's just such a sad and tragic case, Mm -hmm. and was just another example of the end of innocence for a lot of people within those communities. Both these cases tonight were, it's just... You just think that you're invincible and you think that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you or your community. And then stuff like this happens and just it breaks your heart. It really does. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of youth is the invincibility that you feel. I mean, you know, people wouldn't go on adventures or do things like do good things, you know, because they they don't feel invincible. And so. That's just that's just how it works. Like when you're young, you don't think anything bad can happen to you. And for the most part, you're pretty much right, you know, but but then you have these awful examples that just take like just take all of that away, you know. Yeah. They just knock the wind out of you in many ways. Yeah. So at this point we are going to say so long, farewell, goodbye. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions please send us an email. We love getting emails from you guys. We promise to read some more soon. Our email address is the at gmail.com. We will drop that into the show notes along with the details about the case tonight. Darcy, social media. We are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So go give us a follow and interact with us there. We are going to post some pictures as well of the ca- from the cases this evening and put some links in there to the Home Alive organization as well. Um, very useful resource if you're looking for something like that. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys.